This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is a science podcast for November 17th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, have you been talking to Alexa about the weather lately? Staff writer Paul Vusen joins us to discuss how artificial intelligence is suddenly and shockingly good at forecasting the weather, using way fewer resources than other modeling systems. Next, we're focusing on municipal solid waste, things like landfills, composting centers, garbage dumps, and how these sites may offer a more straightforward path to lower carbon emissions. Researcher Zhang Xuanhui discusses his science paper on this overlooked source of methane and some plausible solutions for reducing these emissions. I used to live in a large metropolitan area, and one of the big city perks that I enjoyed the most was that there was a daily weather blog run by experts, including meteorologists, just talking about the weather for the day, giving in-depth explanations of what I was seeing out my window or what happened last night. And I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about some weather phenomena on the podcast. I do know we have about a 10-day forecast range with some certainty, and we're pretty darn good at six days of forecasting, six days out, and that there are competing models used to make these type of predictions. But now there's a new modeler in town. This week, staff writer Paul Vusen wrote about AI's contribution to weather forecasting and the surprising leaps these systems are making in predictive power. Hi, Paul. Welcome back to the Science Podcast. Hi. Good to be here. I know all of us have been taken off guard at some point by improvements in AI, you know, whether it's writing an email or predicting protein structures. But I hate to say it, weather was not on my radar. <laughs> Did you see this coming, Paul, this leap in forecasting by AI? You know, I don't think a lot of people saw it coming if you go back even two, two and a half years ago. People had been trying this five years ago and you know, it just didn't seem like it worked that well. And then all of a sudden it did work. There are modelers out there using supercomputers basically to put out forecasts. They're using math and measurements and physics. And this has improved over the years, kind of at a large cost, like in terms of computing power. And now these AI models are turning out pretty competitive results. You know, how do they stack up? How do the the European model and the AI modelers, how do they compare? Yeah, so the European Weather Forecasting Agency is the top performer in the world, and they use these very 
physically based models that ingest all the observations from satellites and everything, and then solve all the equations of fluid motion on a little grid that simulates the entire atmosphere. So that's the top in class. Yep. Now these kind of AI models are matching the top weather forecasting model or exceeding it. In some cases, 90% of the different metrics looked at over a 10-day forecast. Right. And what are they doing differently? Well, so fundamentally, these have been trained by the weather models. They take the data, the weather data, and has them been run through these models. And they've been doing this now for 40 years. So they take this gigantic data set, they ingest it. And I mean, this is classic deep learning, but on a very kind of large scale over a graph versus, you know, like an image type processing. They're not solving equations. They're just learning patterns, really, over a very complex, incomprehensible scale to us in this black box. And it's spitting out what should come next. This is what we see with the ones that write emails for us. They have this huge corpus that they've studied. It has a really good model for saying, that's the word that comes next in an email. That's the most likely next word. And doing that at the paragraph scale or doing it at the global scale for weather. Are all the models that are out there, all the different AIs, because there's not just one company or one academic institution working on this. Are they all doing the same thing or are there, should we lump them all together or are some of them different than others? You know what? I, I would lump them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There are differences in architecture, but you know, as these have gotten big enough and as long as you have enough computing power to throw at it at the start, enough data, it doesn't seem to matter that much. You know, it's kind of 1%, 2% differences. Uh, you can have different approaches, but really in the end, you're getting to about the same place. Right. We should talk about computing power here. I mentioned supercomputers being involved in the forecasting that's been done for the past 40 years. That's not what happens when you've already trained your model and now you want to, you know, have an AI in your newsroom. It doesn't need multiple banks of servers and processors. Nope. It just needs one fancy desktop computer that's designed for running these type of models and it can run it in one minute versus, say, two hours for a gigantic supercomputer. What does that mean? Like, <laughs> how does that change the world? I, I feel like it should, but maybe I don't need to model weather in my house. You don't need to model weather in your house. What is the impact here? I mean, the impact is going to be more for these weather agencies, you know, who are really starting to look at this closely. Right now, they run these models a lot of times over, 50 times the European model is run at slightly a higher or lower resolution. Every six hours, they kind of do this over and over, four times a day. And that kind of running it over and over gives you some more sense of uh, possibility in the future because, you know, butterfly effect and chaos in the atmosphere, that's all super expensive. If they're able to figure out how to make these AI models, first able to continue to verify that they are fit for purpose in all the different ways that are needed and establish some trust in them, you can maybe start kind of doing this a lot more cheaply. Maybe that's just less CO2 emissions from what you're running. Or you can kind of devote that computing power to solving other problems like how to better ingest all this weather data or things like that. Yeah. Speaking of ingesting, do we need to keep training these AI models? Do they need to keep refining their predictions? Yeah, they would certainly have to periodically update these. This Google DeepMind model that is in Science This Week, they ran, it took like four weeks on their dedicated machines to train it. So, you know, it's something you can see it theoretically doing every year yeah. without being a huge issue. 
we're talking about weather here, you know, what happens day to day, but could an AI like this model climate change, make predictions about climate change? Yeah, so climate is a totally different issue in many ways because the past, this data we have, is not necessarily predictive of the future of the climate. You know, uh, we're changing things a lot. There are things in the future, ice sheets melting, things collapsing that right. just wouldn't be in the training data. So it would be very difficult to trust these projections going forward. But there are ways that it could be very helpful where you can take these climate models. There's this new class of climate model that runs in super high resolutions, directly recreating lots of stuff in the atmosphere. And we can only afford to run this on supercomputers for a few years at a time. It's kind of slowly pushing out. So you get that running long enough, and then you can train the AI on that and run it a bunch of times. And then you really start to get a lot more value from all that computing power that you poured into it. So there's a lot of promise there. Are we going to stop doing the numerical modeling, you know, using physics, using measurement to make forecasts? Not anytime in the near future. We have a lot of trust in this numerical weather modeling and, you know, if the AI is a black box. There's yeah. that question of how far do you trust it? Also, these numerical weather models are producing the data sets that the AI is being trained on. There's kind of, you can't get there without that. Yeah. You know, there's some theoretical future where perhaps the AI can start ingesting the the satellite data directly or the, all the sensor data directly and take it end to end. But we are very far away from that, I believe. Or maybe we're just two years away. Who knows? <laughs> okay. What will AI do next? How is it going to affect your beat next, Paul? <laughs> what, what area is it going to affect? It's filtering in lots of ways that are just, I mean, the image recognition aspect yeah. you know, of it, parts of it are just almost unremarkable at this point where like, oh, this can spot icebergs better. It's like, yeah, you know, of course it can. Anything that's a visual learning type of thing. I'll have another story in a few weeks that will also be about AI and satellites and look out for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Paul. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Paul Busin is a staff writer for science. You can find a link to the story and a related science paper at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a big steaming pile of science. Researcher Zheng Xuanhui talks about modeling landfill emissions on a global scale. Listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. We don't think about garbage enough. According to a paper this week in Science, global municipal waste is a missed opportunity for reducing emissions and meeting climate goals. Zhang Xuan Hoi is an author on the article, and he's here to talk about it. Hi, Hoi. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, sure. So how is the landfill in my town or in your town related to climate change and emissions? Why, why is it a carbon source? Solid waste are actually made up of a large variety of compositions. It is made up of, for example, food waste, paper waste, plastic waste, and so on. 
So the organic content in waste decomposes and predominantly generates methane gas, making solid waste one of the top methane and methane sectors in the world. And methane is an even stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Yeah, so methane is a potent greenhouse gas that traps significantly higher amounts of heat than that of carbon dioxide. So for example, let's consider a scenario where we have two different sources of emissions, one releasing methane and the other releasing carbon dioxide in the same quantities over 20 years. The methane emission will trap 80 times more heat than the carbon dioxide emissions over those 20 years. And this emphasizes the urgency of addressing methane emission to effectively mitigate short-term climate change. Yeah, so we do hear a lot about reducing emissions from things like energy sources, like going solar, or reducing emissions from cars by switching to electrical vehicles. There are a lot of sources of carbon out there. Why is it important to focus on municipal waste, garbage, landfills, that kinds of thing? I think solid waste management is a powerful but overlooked climate solution. Some may perceive waste management as a relatively minor contributor to overall greenhouse gas emissions like compared to the big boys such as energy and transportation. But we may be undermining its climate impact because the major greenhouse gas emissions from solid waste is methane. And methane actually traps significantly higher amounts of heat than carbon dioxide. So in your paper, you attempted to quantify this, to count up to some extent how much is coming off of these sources for carbon emissions. Can you talk a little bit about like what timescale you looked at and how you counted this up? We forecasted the business-as-usual greenhouse gas emissions that would be emitted from the global solid waste sector from 2021 until 2050. After we did this forecast, we actually tried to explore whether there are any technical and financially plausible mitigation strategies within the solid waste management, and we visualized them into future emissions pathway as well. So what are some of the ways that we could cut back on emissions from landfills, from uh, solid waste? Yeah, so we understand that every country faces a unique and exclusive version of this challenge to improve their solid waste management. And it is important to propose mitigation strategies based on their diverse situation regarding its uh, required costs, technology readiness, skilled worker requirements, and their standing in the waste management hierarchy. So considering these requirements, we explored four individual mitigation strategies for reducing emissions from the solid waste sector. So firstly, it is retrofitting landfills with biogas capture. Secondly, diverting organic waste for composting. Thirdly, diverting organic waste for anaerobic digestion. And lastly, reducing waste generation by 50% relative to 2020 levels. Okay, so looking across these four different scenarios, some of these are more social or behavioral interventions. I'm thinking, you know, reducing how much waste we create in the first place or sorting out trash from compost. Others are more technological. And these are things that you're talking about, like retrofitting landfills to capture methane. Or another kind of technical intervention is these uh, biogas digesters. So you basically digest compost with microbes and then you get that methane in either the retrofitted landfill methane or the digest methane, that can be burned as fuel, which is you know, a less carbon-intense approach than just releasing the methane to the atmosphere. You know, When you calculate across all these different waste situations that countries have, 
who fits best with what? Like, who should be doing which of these things to get the most benefit from these strategies? Our findings found that high-income countries should prioritize reducing their waste volume and lower-income countries should prioritize managing their organic waste more sustainably. This is because lower-income countries generally tend to generate waste compositions with a higher organic content as opposed to high-income countries. But generally speaking, the two levers that we identified for minimizing greenhouse gas emissions from global solid waste system is firstly to reduce the waste volume being generated and secondly, managing organic waste more sustainably. And if these were maximized, if this was something that people did and took on, how much reduction could we potentially see in emissions from solid waste? These proposed mitigation strategies by themselves would be able to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that would be emitted and accumulated in the atmosphere in the next 30 years by 27 to 70% relative to business as usual. Okay, so how does that translate into the 1.5 degree limit that we're trying to stay under? Staying within the 1.5 degree Celsius limit requires adopting more than one strategy. But we find that if we adopt multiple strategies, including retrofitting landfills, composting our organic waste, and halving our waste generation, could actually prevent overshooting the Paris Agreement temperature limits. What's more interesting is this will also result in a global solid waste system with net zero warming relative to 2020 levels. In other words, no further warming is induced compared to 2020 levels. Let's talk about the Global Methane Pledge. I think most people are familiar with the climate agreements, but maybe they haven't heard about this other one about methane. Methane was determined to be of particular importance at the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference of the Parties because it has a short lifetime of approximately one decade so cutting its emission can rapidly decelerate near-term global warming. So more than 100 countries come together to sign the Global Methane Pledge, aiming to curb 30% of global methane emission by 2030 using a 2020 level baseline. How does this help with that? We actually look into whether the mitigation strategies that we propose can actually help us to achieve the Global Methane Pledge. Well, it's actually achievable, but that's a catch. Because we designed these mitigation strategies only to be fully adopted by 2050, so it cannot actually reduce 30% of methane emission from the solid waste sector in a timely manner. We will actually need to accelerate the complete adoption of mitigation strategies by at least 9 to 17 years, which is to completely adopt all these strategies by 2033 to 2044, depending on the mitigation strategies, in order for us to be on track with the progress to achieve the Global Methane Pledge. Kind of the surprise here, I think, besides the fact that this is such an impactful intervention, is that all the technologies that you're talking about are already in existence. So they don't rely on a bunch of innovations to, you know, say, take carbon out of the air or invent a new kind of battery. It's just do these things we already know how to do. What do you see as the hurdles to getting this to happen? So the good thing is these technologies are actually readily available technologies, but to realize an efficient waste management system, policymakers need to utilize three types of policy tools to also promote people to actually do these kind of things. I want to highlight that the first one is direct regulation, which is encompassing laws to be enforced rigorously, such as mandating waste segregation in each household. Secondly, economic incentive and disincentive, 
to encourage reduction in waste generation and increase recycling efforts. And thirdly, social tools such as the promotion of education campaigns to inculcate environmental values in communities to generate less waste. Thank you so much, Hoi. Thank you. Happy to be on here. Zhang Xuan Hoi was a MPhil graduate student at the time that this research was conducted at the New Energy Science and Engineering Department at Xiaoman University in Malaysia. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the apps, search for Science Magazine, or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Presby, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.